0: Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. In our series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled The Good News of God's Kingdom, we're exploring the ways that we as disciples of Jesus partner with God for the real, everyday advancing of His kingdom. As Chris mentioned, we are working our way through a series uh, in the, the, through the first 13 or so chapters in the book of Matthew. Uh, the good news of, of, of God's kingdom is kind of what we have entitled the series, and the, the key verse that we are kind of preaching around, as it were, is actually found in our text today, Matthew chapter 4, and if you can just have a look quickly at verse 23, uh, it says there, Matthew writes about Jesus' ministry, the, the, the kind of summary verse of what Jesus came to do. Jesus went throughout Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. These are, are this theme, this idea of Jesus preaching and releasing the love of Jesus and, 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 and the power of God is a, is a theme and a concept that appears often throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, This is not the only time. Matthew chapter nine says something very similar. Um, I'll I'll just read it out to you. It says, um, Jesus went throughout the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. But what I I love about that Matthew nine reference is the context in which that verse is found because the very next verse in Matthew chapter nine goes on to describe Jesus's heart. It says, that Jesus looked upon the people and he had compassion on them because he saw that they were harassed and and, and were being tormented. They were like a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, and and so he turns to the disciples and he says, He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up and release workers to go out into the harvest field. And I say all that to say these verses don't represent a mission statement for Jesus. Sometimes a mission statement can be very cold and calculated. These verses represent something of Jesus' heart. He loved people. He had compassion on people. He saw people struggling. He saw people who were sick and diseased and, and, and tormented by the devil. And his heart was moved with compassion. He, he had the, the Father's burden for these people. And he ministered from that place. Vanessa brought that, that word during the worship about God, how God cares for us, God's, God's love for us, God's, God's mercy over us, God's compassion for us. And I want to say, friends, just very quickly before we get into the text today, these verses and many others like them have really formed and shaped what, what church in the city is called to be, what, what we are trusting to, to be and become. Uh, these verses speak about Jesus going into villages and, and, and towns and cities and, and preaching and proclaiming this, this gospel and releasing uh, the power of God. And, and our mission statement is very similar. God's called church and the city to transform cities by proclaiming and releasing the love of Jesus. Our heart, uh, hopefully too, is, is, is stirred with compassion for people. We want to be a family before we are anything else. We're not a preaching center. We're not a mission center. We're not a, we're not a, a, a business center. We're a, we're a family. We're a community. We're a gathering of people who are, who are on a mission, loving each other, loving God, obviously, loving each other, and loving our city and loving the nations. And, and I love Jesus' cry to the Father, ask the Lord to, to raise up and release workers. And that's so much of our hearts as well as a church we're called to be a, a base church that is training and releasing every single person here so that we can go and be at uh, the example go and go and extend the kingdom of god into our neighborhoods and into our nations but where we want to focus today, I, I, I was drawn to verse 23, and I was thinking today, should I, should I preach on it? And I decided not to, because this entire series is kind of focused in on verse 23. So what I'd like to focus on this morning is verse 18 through verse 22. And if, if you can just kind of cast your eyes down to those verses or look behind me on the screen, let's, let's read together. Verse 18, Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter And his brother, Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. I love how the Bible sometimes says redundant things, but, you know, for they were casting the net into the lake because they were fishermen, which is a good thing for fishermen to do. Come, follow me, Jesus says. Sorry, that's my just uh, weird sense of humor. Um, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Look at verse 20. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and look at verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is the this is the calling of of Peter and Andrew and and John and James. Uh, don't turn there. But I want to read a, a, a f- two verses from Mark chapter two, which describes Jesus calling Levi. Levi is actually Matthew, the one who wrote the gospel that we are studying. So Mark chapter two, verse thirteen and fourteen. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw we're going to come back to that. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up, and he followed him. I find their response fascinating. I find their response challenging. I mean, Jesus says, Jesus says come follow me, and, and, and the text tells us at once, and immediately these guys got up and they followed Jesus in Luke chapter five. The same kind of scene is described by Luke, and he says they left everything to follow Jesus. Think about how this plays out in the family context. Peter comes home from work that day and uh, walks into the door, walks into the house. Doesn't walk into the door; he walks into the house. And uh, and his wife says, "Hey, honey, how was your day?" "Yeah, it was good, I guess." I quit my job. What? You quit your job? Why? Well, Jesus told me to follow him. I mean just just to think about the logic. If if you if a husband or a wife came home today and, and said those exact words to, to, to your spouse or to your friend, I mean you would think we've lost our marbles, completely gone crazy. So so what drove these men? What what was the reason for these men to, to respond in this radical manner? I think at first it's easy to think that, well, they've obviously got a revelation that Jesus Christ was Lord. And, and, and although that's easy to think, it's, it's, it's wrong because that revelation of Jesus being the Lord of all wasn't yet fully developed. Matthew 16, much later on, describes the time when Peter, by revelation from the Father, says, proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. So, so in this, with this kind of uh, uh, understanding of Jesus still developing, what drove these disciples? What caused these disciples to follow in the radical way that they followed? Well, I think it's found in the three words that Jesus chose to use when he called Peter and Andrew, and when he called John and James, and when he called Levi, come, follow me. It was every Jewish boy's dream to be a rabbi. That was the ultimate job. That was, that was the dream position. It's hard to kind of find an equivalent in our culture because there are so many various kinds of jobs that we can do. But the, the sad reality was only a very, very, very small percentage of Jewish boys ultimately walked into the ultimate dream job to become a rabbi. They'd had that dream, their parents had that dream, but a very small percentage of them actually became what they had hoped or dreamed to be. The the far greater reality was that many boys ended up working in their father's business, just doing the family business. They had to, most Jewish boys, most Jewish men had to live with the reality that they never became what they dreamed to become. It reminds me so much of my father. Not that my father dreamed to become a Jewish rabbi, but my my father, for so many years, he's an he he was an incredibly intelligent man, incredibly creative man. Grew up in England during the Second World War, and uh, after the war, he had this passion and this dream to be creative. He wanted to. His ultimate job was to be a set designer for a theater company. That's what he wanted to do, but. England, after the war, did not need set designers for theater companies. And so at the age of 16, he left high school and he taught himself to be a bookkeeper and spent the rest of his years between the age of 16 and 66, when he ended up retiring, 50 years being a bookkeeper. He was faithful in his job, but every day you could see the burden and the weight on him doing something he never dreamed of doing. We weren't allowed to talk to him in the morning until 8.30 when he left. Literally, we were not allowed to talk to my father in the morning because he was upset about having to take on this responsibility. But when he came home at five o'clock, I mean, his face was different. And then he would spend every single night that I can remember from 5.30 till often two o'clock in the morning creating. He would build boats. He would build ships. He would build dollhouses. He would build airplanes. I mean, our house was filled with things. But my father, just like Peter, just like J- uh, uh, Andrew, James, John, Lever, had to learn how to live with the disappointment of not being or becoming what they had hoped to be or become. What I want to do this morning is, is take you through a little bit of a historical journey of what young Jewish boys had to go through in order to hopefully become a rabbi. And I know this, I want you to kind of track with me if you can, because I think there's some fascinating truths that we can learn about how Jesus deals with us. Now, I want to say I'm not an expert on Jewish history. And so some of you here might be that expert. I did a lot of research and I did a lot of study this week. And generally, what I'm going to share with you is, holds true. Some of the details in some of the articles that I read are a little bit contradictory. So if I get some of the details wrong, just extend a little bit of grace. But generally, this is what I've found. It starts at the age of six. Every single Jewish boy at the age of six is expected to recite from memory the book of Leviticus. How many of you have read the book of Leviticus? (laughs) Okay, probably one of the hardest books in the Bible. Every single Jewish boy by the age of six was required to memorize the book of Leviticus. Now remember, they didn't have a copy of the Bible with them or the Old Testament. So their memorization of Leviticus was dependent on their father's memorization of Leviticus when he was a six-year-old boy. That's a different sermon for a different time. But this, this incredible, this incredible uh, uh, opportunity for a father to invest in, in his son. If they got that right, they would then go to this school called the school of the book. And at that point, so at, at boys from the age of six or so to 12 or 13, at the school of the book, these boys would do some more memorization. Now they were required to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, five incredibly difficult and complex books in the Bible. As I'm sure you can imagine, there's there's a high attrition rate. Lots of boys dropping out because they're not making the grade. Can't remember a verse in Leviticus, forgetting a verse in Deuteronomy or whatever. And so, what happened through those kind of five years or so, from the age of ten to fourteen or so? Sorry, from the age of six to ten or twelve what those boys would do at every single break in the lessons, they would go back home to learn their father's business because the inevitable would happen with most of them. They would would be disqualified. They wouldn't make the grade. They'd end up falling away and have to take on the responsibilities of the father's business. That's why Jesus was a carpenter. That's why Peter, sorry, that's why Paul was a tent maker that's why we see Peter and why we see Andrew and James and John fishing. They had learned the father's business and were doing those things. After the school of the book, if, the, if they made it through that stage, then they would go to what is known as the school of learning or discipleship school. And yes, once again, memorization would be an, in- an integral part of their studies. Now they would learn most of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. Most of what we know to be the Old Testament, they would memorize. I mean, it's remarkable. But it wasn't just memorization that was important at the school of of learning or discipleship school. Here, they would begin, these young boys would begin to learn how to wrestle with the concepts of Scripture, how to have conversations with one another about God. And the way that they would learn that is by learning how to ask good questions. The main way that rabbis taught disciples was to teach them to answer a question with another question, or to answer a question with a parable. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 is a great example. John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, it's not fair. Why do we have to fast, but your disciples don't have to fast? To which Jesus says, well, People don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Well, we didn't ask about wine and wineskins. We were asking about fasting. Jesus was applying the techniques that he had learned in, 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 in school. Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 19, a rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replies, Why do you ask me about what is good? Here's an example for you. So, say someone comes to you and says, says to you, uh, um, so do you believe that a, a good and loving God will allow suffering? If we had learned the technique that Jesus had learned, our answer would be not to give them the answer, but to say, so do you believe in a good and loving God? You're not trying to be a wise guy, but what you're forcing people to do is to take responsibility for the questions they're asking. And to help them begin the journey towards wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And friends, this is so contrary to Western thinking and Western teaching. In the West, we're taught to memorize things. In the West, we're taught to have to, taught to learn facts and to recite information and to recite facts. But we don't really we aren't really challenged to grapple and to and to wrestle with with, with truth. We find somebody who claims to be an expert with lots of degrees behind their name or they have a platform and we assume that they know everything and we look to them for the answers. We demand answers right away. We generally feel very uncomfortable with things that can't be properly explained. And we want methods and steps and formula. Show me the five steps to a healthy marriage. Give me six steps to financial freedom. We don't like the patience that is required to journey towards truth, wisdom, and understanding. And so what happens in the West, what happens generally, I think, in the States is we submit our lives to principles when the Bible is teaching us to submit our life to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I was trying to teach last week when we spoke about warfare, I said to you last week when we spoke about warfare, those who, those who were here out of the first part of, of Matthew chapter four, Jesus, the, the, when it comes to warfare, there are not steps or formula to spiritual warfare. Warfare is about being in relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. Warfare is about knowing who you are in Jesus, being submitted to God's word and being led by the spirit of God. That's what we've been teaching through Matthew 1 through 4. The grace of God in Matthew chapter 1. The ability to hear God's voice in in Matthew chapter 2. Being filled by the Spirit in Matthew chapter 3. In order for us to, in relationship with God, defeat the devil so we can do the kingdom ministry that God has asked us to do. I want to say, friends, don't... You've heard me say this before, and I want to say it again. Don't give away the privilege that every single one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ, don't give that privilege away of being able to hear the Father for yourself. Yes, we, 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 we hold each other to account. Yes, we share perspective, because sometimes hearing God can be, can be subjective. Sometimes we can hear what we want to hear. That's why we have one another. That's why we have leaders to help us. But, but I want to say, friends, leaders should never take the place of God. You don't need to go to a leader to hear God. You can hear God for yourself. Don't give that away to anybody. A rabbi's teaching or a rabbi's interpretation of the Torah or the scriptures was called his yoke. What this rabbi would do was when he found some disciples, normally two or three disciples that he would work with, he would would entrust or, we, or he would share his yoke, his, his interpretation of the Torah to these young disciples for them in turn to continue his understanding of the Scriptures. And this rabbi was only doing what had been done to him. This, this interpretation of Scripture, this yoke that had been passed down from generation to generation. Every now and then though, every four or five generations, there was a rabbi who arrived on the scene who was called a rabbi with authority. And I won't get into how he was identified as such such a rabbi, but he because he was a rabbi with authority, he was given the opportunity, he was given the freedom to interpret the scriptures with fresh insights and with fresh understanding. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, do you know what the crowd said at the end of Matthew 7 when Jesus had finished teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Those that had gathered to listen to Jesus teach heard him, they said this, when he had finished, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law had taught There was a new rabbi in town, and his name was Jesus, and he came with a fresh yoke. He came with a new yoke, a fresh understanding, and a fresh interpretation of the Scriptures. He came not just to teach, but to set people free. He had the authority to liberate people through the ministry that the Father had placed upon him. I love the the story, the, the, the account that is shared in Mark chapter one, where right away from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Mark, he goes into a synagogue and he begins to teach. And with that teaching, he sees a man who is oppressed by a demon and he drives the demon out. And the crowds that are in the synagogue say this, a new teaching and with Authority. And with authority, Jesus was making it clear what he had come to do here on earth. He had come to take back what the devil had stolen. He had come to set people free by inviting them into relationship with the heavenly father through receiving his lordship in their lives. I love most of all, though, in Matthew chapter 11, how Jesus describes his yoke how Jesus describes his interpretation of the scriptures. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Doesn't that sound like Jesus saying to the disciples, come, follow me? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke Take my understanding of the scriptures. Take my understanding of the truth of God, not what, the, not what your tradition has taught you, not what, not what the people have passed down from generation to generation and it is steeped in religion. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And then Jesus says this, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, it's no wonder in Matthew chapter 5, which is the passage that Hugh's gonna preach on next week, it's no wonder in Matthew 5, when Jesus starts his ministry and begins to preach, that he has to preach on a mountainside, because word got around very quickly. There's a new rabbi in town, and this man has authority, and he has a yoke that is easy and light. And that's why the crowds came to, to listen to Jesus. Where would rabbis find their new disciples? Well, rabbis most of the time would go to the school the school of learning the discipleship school, and they would look for graduates, those young boys who had passed all the tests and who had learned how to converse and how to wrestle with the truth of scripture, they would, they, they would go and they would look for suitable candidates who, who knew the scriptures and people that uh, boys that they could entrust their yoke to. And you know what words that rabbis would use to call somebody to say, would you come and be my disciple? They would say the words, come, follow me the words that every single jewish boy had grown up longing to hear but peter and james and john and andrew and levi never got to hear those words because they had fallen short of what was expected of them they had been disqualified from being chosen as a disciple and they had gone back to their father's business to learn how to be a fisherman and to learn how to be a tax collector. And so this new rabbi, this new rabbi with authority, this new rabbi with a, with a yoke that is, that is easy and a yoke that is light, this new rabbi that is bringing a yoke of, of grace and peace and mercy and patience and kindness and love, this new rabbi, where does he go to find his disciples? He doesn't go to the discipleship school. He walks along the side of the lake. In fact, Luke chapter 6 tells us that before Jesus chose his disciples, he spent a night in prayer, waiting on the Father, asking God for wisdom and revelation to to show him who was it that he needed to choose. And if you go back to that text we had a look at in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus walked on the side of the lake, and he saw Peter and Andrew, and he saw James and John, and he saw Levi. That word to, 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 to see is such a fascinating word in the original text. We have one word, the word see or saw, to describe that 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 ability to perceive something. But but this word that Jesus this word that Matthew uses to describe what Jesus did is so much more than just biology. The biology of seeing, the biology of perceiving, the biology of of knowing. It speaks of to see with the mind's eye. It speaks of a prophetic insight. It speaks of a prophetic understanding. Jesus wasn't just seeing these potential disciples as, as, as interesting people. He got the Father's heart for them. He had spent a night in prayer crying out to the Father, show me with wisdom and revelation who I should choose. And God showed Jesus who, that he, who he should choose, not on the basis of who they are, but on the basis of who they would become in him. Jesus walks along the side of the lake and he says to to Peter and he says to Andrew, come, follow me. The words these men had longed to hear, but never did. It's no wonder they left their boats immediately and followed Jesus. It's no wonder they gave up everything and said, amen, lock, stock and barrel. I'm in wholeheartedly. Everything else I'm putting aside because this rabbi sees something of potential in me and I'm going to follow him. When Jesus called these disciples, he was calling disqualified people. He was qualifying disqualified people. And he was placing upon them a fresh yoke and a new yoke, a yoke of grace, a yoke of mercy, a yoke of kindness, a yoke that was easy and a burden that was light. And he was calling them to to continue to help in in, in extending his kingdom. Take my yoke and extend it and extend my kingdom into the nations of the world. Friends, I want to say, Jesus is still doing this today. This is still Jesus' ministry today. Jesus sees you and me. He sees every single person on this planet. He doesn't see us for our, for our failures and our shortcomings and our insecurities and our doubts and our fears. He doesn't see us for the guilt and the shame from the past. But when he sees us, when he looks on us, he sees us with prophetic insight. He sees us for who we are, who we can become in him. He sees the prophetic, his prophetic future upon you. And he calls you, come follow me. Come, follow me. Let me place my yoke upon you, my yoke that is easy and my yoke that is light. Come, let me, let, let me teach you a new way of interpreting the scriptures. Come and be a part of extending my kingdom. Come and share this message with the nations of the world. And that's what we quickly want to look at as we end this morning. What is this, what is this yoke of Jesus that we learn from this particular text? What is this message of the kingdom that Jesus has given to us? Firstly, I want to say it's a message for everybody. This is a message for everybody. The good news of the gospel is the message that everybody needs to hear. And to, uh, verses 12 through 6, we won't read them, but verses 12 through 6 describe how Jesus begins his ministry. He goes into what is known in this text as, as, the, uh, as the Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, uh, historians say that it is probably the most densely populated area in the Middle East at, at that time. And Jesus begins his ministry by going there, and what he's doing is he's giving a hint of who he is and what he's come to do. The lamb of God, we sang it this this morning, the lamb of God who comes to, to take away the sins of the Jews. No, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus died that all men might be saved, friends. Not some. We don't get to be selective who we preach the gospel to. We don't get to be selective who we declare the good news of Jesus to. God came that all men, all women, all children from every nation and from every generation come to hear the truth of who he is. Secondly, this message of God's kingdom, this yoke of Jesus, secondly, it's a message with authority. Look at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Friends, Jesus preached the word of God with authority. He was a rabbi with authority. He he was given authority from his father. And the disciples, the the disciples of Jesus, you and I get to operate in that same authority if and only if we choose to submit ourselves to to Jesus. You see, friends, the truth of God's word can never hope to impact people unless we first surrender to that truth ourselves. The truth of God's word, the reality of Jesus being Lord and Savior will never have an impact anywhere unless we first willingly say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? We've got to submit ourselves to his authority so that we can hope to operate in authority. Jesus taught that somewhere else in the gospels. He says, I too am a man under authority. The centurion says to Jesus, uh, I'm getting it all wrong. The centurion uh, says to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. Jesus recognized that he had authority because he was under authority. Friends, I, I, I want to, I trust you do too, want to preach with authority, want to teach with authority, want to declare the good news with authority, want to pray with authority, want to release the life of God with authority. But it comes when we surrender and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then lastly what is this message of God's kingdom it's a message with ministry it's not just preaching it's not just teaching it's not just declaring truth it's not just preaching at people it's not just proclaiming it's proclaiming and releasing the love of Jesus it's teaching and healing it's 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 uh, it's preaching and showing people the love of God. Look at verse twenty three. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Friends, Jesus qualifies the unqualified. Jesus qualifies the disqualified when he calls us and he calls us to partner with him to continue to share the message of the kingdom. It's a message for everyone. It's a message that comes with authority when we submit to Jesus and it's a message that comes with ministry. And I wanna end off with this. What is our part? What is our part in all this? Our part is to follow him closely. That's it. That's our part. Follow him closely. There's a beautiful blessing that is declared over young rabbi, young disciples who've been chosen by a rabbi. A beautiful blessing. And the blessing is this May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust. Of your rabbi. What, what does that mean? Well, th- what it means is stay so close to your rabbi that as he walks those dusty streets, you are covered in his dust. Not the dust of your hurt and shame. Not the dust of mistakes from the past. Not, the, not, not any dust from, from, from guilt, from, from things that, that you may have done or, or things ma- that maybe have been done to you. The dust of Jesus Christ when we follow him closely. Are you covered in that dust? Maybe you're not covered in that dust because you're, you're keeping your distance from Jesus. You're saying, yes, yes, Jesus, I, I've given my life to you, but, but I, I'm not gonna get too close because I've been hurt before. Or maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus today. Maybe you do, you're not covered in the dust of Jesus because you're covered in the dust of your own self-reliance, your own self-importance. And I know that sounds... That's not meaning to be harsh, but, but friends, the, the, the moment you and I realize that we are not our own savior, the moment you and I realize that we cannot add an, an inch or a, millimeter, a, a, a gram or whatever the measurement of righteousness is, and I don't even know if there is a measurement of righteousness, we cannot add any measurement of righteousness to ourselves through our own self-importance or our own self-effort. The moment we realize that and surrender to Jesus is the moment Jesus can say, all right, I can use that person. Let me come into his life and be his Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe as I've been preaching, God has been saying to you, come, follow me. I don't wanna embarrass you or make you feel uh, uh, weird in any way, but I would love right where you are seated to lead you in a prayer where you can surrender your heart to Jesus and say, Lord, I wanna come to know you as my Lord and Savior. I wanna receive that yoke that is easy and that burden that is light. I've tried religion, I've tried self-righteousness, and they've fallen short. If that's you today, if you're saying, Steve, would you pray with me? Would you lead me in a prayer where I can receive Jesus into my heart? Would you quickly lift up your hand? that I can see you. I'd love to lead you in a prayer this morning. Anyone wanna open up their hearts to Jesus and say, Jesus, come and be my Lord and Savior? Just lift up your hand. I'd love to pray with you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross. And Jesus, thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you were raised from the dead And you are now seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you that we do not just serve a God who who was, but we serve a God who was, who is, and who is still to come. You are seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus. And the good news of the gospel, Lord God, is that we are found in you. We are at the Father's right hand. Lord, I pray over every one of us here this morning, Lord, help us to follow closely. I pray, Father, that we would be covered in your dust. We would be covered in your glory dust, Lord Jesus. We would be covered in your mercy. We would be covered in your grace. We would be covered in your love and in your compassion and in your patience. Lord, your, your nature, your heart, your character, Lord, let it, let it cover us. Let it fill us. Let it change us. Let it transform us, Lord God. Father, I thank you that when you called each one of us, you saw an incredible prophetic future for us. And I pray today, Lord, I pray that we, when all is said and done, when you take us home or when you come back, I pray every person in this room would have walked out the fullness of your calling in you, I pray, Father God, I pray not one of us, Lord, would miss a step. I pray that we would experience everything that you desire us to experience, that we would see and walk into and usher in the fullness of your plan and purpose for our lives. Father, I pray that we would do that by following closely. By taking every step that you call us to take. By simply saying, Jesus, we're right behind you. Help us to do that, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. You can always check out more messages at churchinthecity.us or on iTunes.